0: But tonight, I was, for tonight, I was struck by a text that you find here in Hosea 6, and I want to read from verse 1. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Hosea 6, verse 1, come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn And He will heal us, He is smitten, and He will bind us up. After two days will He revive us, in the third day He will raise us up, and we shall live in His sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, His going forth is prepared as the morning, and He shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets, and have slain them by the words of my mouth. And thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity, and is polluted with blood. And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent For they commit lewdness. I have seen an horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, he hath set an harvest for thee when I returned the captivity of my people. Amen. We'll end at the close of Hosea 6. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's seek the Lord for His help as we consider His Word. Lord, we come acknowledging our need for help even to hear the Word. There are a few occasions when we come to this moment where, in my mind at least, there is not that text of our spoken by our Savior that rushes in, take heed how, ye hear. O God, deliver us from merely receiving details and information, and give us an ear for thy voice, heart to respond with affection, and a will that will do. For him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin." Oh, Lord, help us not to sin even in how we hear thy word. To that end, give the help of the Spirit to aid us. Again, advance thy cause. Save souls. Restore the backslidden. Feed thy sheep and lambs. Be amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. number of weeks ago, I listened to an audiobook, the, the famous title by Machiavelli, the, the Prince. And I was, I was struck by some of the detail. I don't know if you ever listened to or read it. Um, in it, he, he basically addresses to the, the Duke of Florence uh, how to govern, uh, especially how to govern in different territories and regions. Uh, it's kind of a political. Uh, theology of sorts, uh, political, uh, how to deal with the politics of the era based on on history. He draws much from ancient history, much from different people groups and battles and wars and everything you can learn from the past, as well as what he himself had experienced as a diplomat and his interactions with men of power and their aspirations and desires and so on. And, And listening to it, there's there's one one place where he says it is therefore better to be feared than to be loved. If one cannot be both, because men are less hesitant about injuring someone who makes himself loved than one who makes himself feared. I was I was thinking about that, and there are a few other things actually even in relation to. How he discusses, you know, if you're if you're dealing with people who are used to freedom, a republic, or something, you have to handle them differently than someone or a people group who maybe have come from under a king and so on and so forth. It's very it's interesting, at least for uh, me anyway, as I was I was just listening to different details of it. But I was struck by that statement that it's better to be feared than to be loved if you can't be both. Men are less hesitant about injuring someone who makes himself loved than one who makes himself feared. In other words, it's risky to govern by love. It's risky. You want to govern by love, there's risk involved. Because when people finally decide they're going to turn against you, they'll be far less hesitant to do so by someone who has shown them love and affection and care than someone who has ruled in tyranny like a wicked despot. While it may be risky for men, it's not a risk for God. God's not threatened by what men may do. And so God may rule in love without any sense of threat against the sovereign rule. He can show love, show mercy. He's not worried about what men may do. He's not going to be dethroned. He's not going to be removed from his position of power. So we're not worried about God. God doesn't have to then rule in tyranny to keep us in check. But the, the statement does reveal to us something about men, if it be true. If men are less hesitant about injuring someone who makes himself loved than one who makes himself feared, that shows your natural tendency in response to what it is we receive from someone who may be in power. It shows that man by nature will take advantage, and God being in control, if God governs in love and mercy. if he governs in goodness, men will take advantage. They will not recognize the mercy of it. I also may show to you why tyrannical forms of cults and alternative religions may actually retain more of their adherence than the gospel and biblical religion. Because through the tyranny, they're afraid. They're made to fear God in a way that makes them terrified to leave or leave the cult, leave the group, leave the religion. But when you express that God is loving, when the Bible reveals that God is loving, then men may be inclined to take advantage of that. Men, therefore, are not hesitant to injure God, so to speak. Go to Hosea 11. You'll see how God had dealt with His people. This is just one expression of it here. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. Image, sort of strange language there, but the idea is teaching him to walk, like holding him so that he might find his way in his steps. But they knew not that I healed them, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat onto them. Do you have a people here that are favored, that God is merciful to, and yet instead of responding in love and affection, instead of recognizing how merciful He had been to them, they took advantage of it. They're called in the last chapter of the book, if you go to Hosea 14, verse 1, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto Him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from Him. God shows mercy over and over and over again. Hosea comes as a mouthpiece of God to warn the people once again, to call them to repentance, to a people that had been so advantageously positioned. God has so mercifully received them, forgiven them, guided them, protected them, shepherded them. So he brings a complaint Complaint against them because they're marked by unfaithfulness. And even manifestations of spirituality is marked by shallowness. It doesn't stick, doesn't last, seems so fleeting. And so you have in Hosea 6 an expression I'd never really considered before. In verse 4, Hosea 6:4, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness. It's as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. Your said, that's the word, the mercy, the goodness, anything they showed that was spiritually, a manifestation of spirituality, a manifestation of what God had given to them, as they would reciprocate, as they would manifest the gospel, or what the gospel compels believers to show, even when they would do that, it's like a morning cloud. You wake up and it's there. A short time later, you can't find it. It's gone. Where did it go? Seems so promising. We imagine perhaps it was going to bring rain. But no, it disappeared almost as if it was never there in the first place. And the same as the Jew, the early Jew. That Jew that, boys and girls, you see and you go out in the morning sometimes you, and you, you see it on the grass and it's, it's thick upon the grass and yet... Perhaps you come back inside, and then you go out again, and it's it's bone dry, it's as if it was never there. And that's the spirituality of God's people. Sometimes you look at them, and it's there's life there, some expression of of, of thankfulness and gratitude and desire to serve. Then you look again. Where did it go? Maybe you've felt it in your own heart. At times God had to come, and in language of judgment too, you see that in verse 5, therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I've cut them, I've chopped at them by the ministry of the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. So give them warning. Yet still, this is how they live. So, for the time that remains, I want us to consider transient passions for God. Transient passions for God. I, I just get in under my skin. Because so much that you see in the professing church is transient. And it's not just in the church. By by nature we're like this. We we may show and use strong language of commitment, but we lack consistency. Man, walk into a new job. Can't believe this great job. They love the job. They love everything about it. Thank you, boss. This is the great, best job I've ever had. And then before the boss knows it, it's like, where is he? He's gone. Taking another job. Gone somewhere else. I thought he loved this job. <laughs> it's like, no. He's away somewhere else for whatever reason. So transient. If you've been a pastor for long enough, you've seen it even in God's work. and I'll talk about this. Because it wasn't here, it was in Calgary, where I had this anyway you know, it happens it regularly happens almost weekly you might have someone who comes in and might express gratitude and so on, and then they're gone. they never you never see them again. it's part of it, but I will never forget as long as I live I don't think I will forget this. Uh, occasion in Calgary where this this gentleman and his wife came into the church, and through the service. There's, there's definitely, they're being moved by the preaching and so on, and then I meet them at the door, and they, they're just so tearful, like tearful. I mean, sobbing, sobbing, tears. Thank you. Twenty-something years I've been in this city longing for, for ministry like this, for a church like this, for preaching like this, and so on. And he's just, <laughs> it's this profuse expression of of gratitude that you're standing there slightly awkwardly, but, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and so on and so forth. And uh, next Lord's Day, they weren't there. <laughs> they, weren't, they didn't turn up. So, so I called them. I said, uh, you know, it's everything okay? I've missed you this Lord's Day, and so on and so forth. And I uh, said, no, we can't come. Uh, I realized that uh, you don't believe in the Basically, a dispensational view of the Lord's return. That was that was basically it. We, we weren't dispensational, so that was the reason. I thought I just I just remember on the other end of the phone thinking, I don't believe this. I mean, you've been looking for this for twenty-something years, or something, and and based on the fact that I don't hold to your eschatology, that you're going to stay at home instead, because that's what they've been doing. You're going to stay at home after such a moving experience that previous week. Just throw it aside and stay at home I just wow how fickle are men how fickle are men but this is not just found among the few this is found among many and in our own hearts too that's the sad reality so this should be instructive because one of the biggest challenges you will face in your life is this transient this this transience in terms of spirituality that you feel passionately about your devotion to God and then it seems to dissipate so easily. Like I say, like, like the scripture talks about, it's like a cloud that was there promising something and then before you know it, it's gone as if it was never there in the first place, gone without a trace. Or the dew in the morning, again, it's there and then you go back out later and you wouldn't even know it had ever been there. So first with first note with me, transient passions can be deadly in their consequences. They can be deadly in their consequences. There are examples in Scripture regarding this kind of experience. And you can name many. But in the first place, I want us to think about the wife of Lot. You remember her? Go back to Genesis 18, perhaps, just to to note there uh, what, what occurred. And especially, I want the children to follow. So parents, I encourage you to show Show your children in the Scripture if they don't have a copy of God's Word themselves because they know these stories. They, they're aware of these details, but I want them to know that this is, this is there for, for their learning, that they are to learn from this. So Genesis 19, let's, let's move over there to... Let's see. Now you know, that, you know that what's happened here. Abraham has been praying for this city God has said He's going to judge it. Abraham intercedes for it. And the two angels carry on into the city. And they give warning. They give warning to Lot. And they try to pull Lot and his entire family out of there giving warning. Lot, of course, hears what they're saying, responds positively to it, tries to express it to his sons-in-law. He, you see it in verse 14 as he tells them, He seemed as one that mocked onto his sons-in-law, it doesn't seem to fit. that This urgency about judgment doesn't seem to fit with the life that they have seen in him. So in some ways we could criticize Lot because his own affections for God have been transient too. He was truly a child of God. He knew the Lord, but he, he went into Sodom. He took his family into Sodom and whatever affections were there certainly were greatly diminished. Now he maintained some semblance of fear of God, response to his word, Sufficient that when the warning comes, he's going to go. But his wife, look at verse 16, they linger. So the men, these angels, they lay hold upon them, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. So they are delivered outside Sodom. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad... That he said, escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain lest thou be consumed. So this is the warning. Get out of here. Don't even look behind you. I'll not read it all, but you go to verse 26. His wife looked back from behind him. She was moved sufficiently to respond She wasn't like the sons-in-law, just dismissing what was being said. She was willing to come. Now, she was grabbed, but there's some kind of willingness. Her feet are moving in the right direction. She's been dragged out of the city, and off she moves, and she's told, don't look back. So whatever there was in her heart, in terms of that, that that was spiritually positive That maybe drew Lot towards her in the first place, or at least her willingness to be submissive to the true God so that he could worship privately and not be conflicted in that. Whatever interest she had, it did not stick. And ultimately, whatever spiritual experience she had, it was transient. And she longed to go back to Sodom. She preferred to be there. You can think of the children of Israel. Go to Exodus 14. Exodus 14, here we have the great deliverance of God bringing His people out of Egypt, this illustration of redemption, God's mercy. They go through the Red Sea. It comes in over the top of their enemies, and they are rejoicing in what the Lord has has done. So Exodus 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord in his servant Moses. There you have it. There's the cloud. There's the Jew upon the grass. They have been convinced. Influenced, they see what God has accomplished, they can hardly believe their eyes. They're moved. The next chapter details the song that they sing in praise unto God. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. They're singing in praise to God. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Exodus 15:18. Then you come to verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? <laughs> so immediately they begin to murmur. They have this this sense of what God has accomplished for us and the rejoicing and singing in it. Three days later, that, that cloud, that expression of spirituality and trust in God had evaporated. Go! You'd wonder if it was ever there in the first place. Do, do you see yourself in this? Do you, do you see how this, this is written not so that we might mock the children of Israel, but so we might see in them the, what is true of ourselves so often. Go to the New Testament, Mark 10. You have the rich young ruler. Now these are all familiar scenes. Boys and girls, they're familiar. Most of these you're going to know very well. I want you to see that each of them contains a particular warning. It's the same kind of warning. It's this this sense of of the transitory expression of interest in the things of God in any expression of love for Jesus Christ. Mark 10, we'll read from verse 17. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running. Now, if you said to someone how they should move toward Jesus, would you say, crawl, walk, or run? You'd say, run. Don't hesitate. Run to Jesus. This is a good thing. He's running. He kneeled to him. If I was to ask you, what's a good posture to show before the Son of God? Would it be to get on a chair and look down upon him? Would it be to just stand eyeball to eyeball? Or would it be to kneel down and show him reverence? You say kneeling down. So this is all very good. He kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? There's the cloud. It's so promising. We're so hopeful for him. We're reading this and saying, what a wonderful uh, uh, mercy that this young man has run to Christ. And he's just about to lay hold upon eternal life. Look at his interest. Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. So here's a problem already. We're detecting a problem because there's, there's this, this sense Jesus sees the pride of his heart. He's also left out a particular commandment that is his peculiar weakness, that is covetousness. So then, verse 21, Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him, One thing thou likest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. It was like a cloud, promising to give much-needed rain, and before you know it, gone. Boys and girls, this is our concern. As a pastor, a concern for you because you sit. You sit every Lord's Day under the Word. And in your family, you hear God's Word. And the question then is, what are you doing with it? Because there are times where you might feel a little more emotional about it. But this is exposing. This is exposing any mere emotional response to God's Word. There has to be a real holding on to, holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see that more as we progress. Go to Acts twenty-four. I just want to see. I want you to see how often you, these kind of things are found in God's Word. Acts twenty-four. Here, Paul has the opportunity to stand before a governor in the person of Felix. And Acts 24, read from verse 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul, listen, and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. They're not talking about football. They're not talking about the weather or politics. He wants to hear Think of it. This governor said, I want to hear you concerning the faith in Christ. There's a cloud. Paul's called for. Paul, Felix wants to hear the gospel. A cloud appears. Hope arises. Verse 25, and as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. The cloud gets a little bigger. Paul can look in the eye and he can see it. He can see the physiological response to the truth. the Trembling in his hand or in his chin or in his voice or something else. Seems so Promising. What does he say? Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. But he never did. He never got to this point again. One last one. 2 Timothy 4. We read, boys and girls, of a man by the name of Demas. He actually appears a number of times in the New Testament. Paul refers to him at the end of Colossians and Philemon as a fellow laborer, someone who was with him, someone who stood by him, helped him, ministered along with him. And 2 Timothy 4, this is the last epistle of the apostle. He knows that his time is short. He knows that he's about to have to offer his life. And so you see that, verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. It's right there, I know, it's coming. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but on to all them also that love is appearing." Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Demas, Demas wasn't just a little cloud, Demas was a certain expression of rain. <laughs> It's it's inevitable. The cloud is so large, there's no way it's going to dissipate. It must give forth rain. The dew is so heavy, even the strongest sun beating down upon it is not going to cause it all to evaporate. And yet it did. Transient passions. Here's a man who left his home, went out to preach the gospel, stood with the apostle and many of his experiences. But he loved this present world. And I, I may have expressed this before. I, I don't think we're simply to look at that, that he was overcome with a sense of longing for riches. I don't think that's all it was. I think contextually and with what Paul says Leading up to it, 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 at least I say the possibility may be that as it became evident that Paul must be martyred, Demas realizes he may go the same way. And he feels tied to this world. He was prepared to identify and receive the scoffing that Christians received, the mockery that Christians received. He did a lot better than many others. But when it came to being asked to lay down his life, he analyzed and he says no. He walks away from Paul. Worst of all, he walks away from Christ and the cloud disappears. Transient passions. They can be deadly in their consequences. Lot set up as an example of judgment it's not there to encourage us in terms of an example to follow Lot's wife his wife is to be looked at and remembered to bring fear into her hearts let me not be like her the warnings concerning the children of Israel they did not enter into the promised land because of unbelief it's there to prevent us you see it in Hebrews we've seen it months by that they're they're set up as an example don't do this Don't do this. Don't have this transient experience of affection and interest in the things of God but fall short because of some other thing. Rich young ruler, he goes away. Never hear of him ever coming back. Phoenix, who trembles. Never hear of him having any expression of concern. I think if my memory's right, that secular history records that he took his own life, I think. I may be misremembering there. And Demas as well walks away, we never hear of him ever returning. So transient passions can be deadly in their consequences. It's not how you start, boys and girls, it's how you finish. It's not how well you rehearse the verses and the catechism sitting here in church. It's what you do when it matters. Now, you can't see the future, right? You're unable to know, what am I going to do down the line? But this is a warning to you. It's a warning that you don't rest simply on some expression of affection in Jesus today. It's a warning so that you see the importance of going on, no matter what stands in your way. Secondly, transient passions are diverse in their reasons. Why is it that we're so transient? What? what's the problem with us? What's the problem with our context? And, you know, you could answer that simply. You really could. You could answer it in a very simple way. You say, the reason, the bottom line is this, they have not the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. So without the Holy Spirit, they can't persevere. Without the Holy Spirit, they don't keep going on through the trial. That's a legitimate answer. And yet you have those who do have the Spirit that exhibit similar characteristics. Think of Peter. Go to John 13 and a familiar portion where again you have him boasting. Boasting. It doesn't matter what stands before me, Lord. I'll I'll do whatever it takes. John 13, 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. I will lay down my life for thy sake. That's, that's a, <laughs> there's a cloud with a big expression of, of commitment. If a man says he's prepared to give his life, then you might conclude nothing will get in his way. Nothing. Is that what we find? Jesus tells him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. So this this transient aspect of passion for God and for Christ isn't something we can totally escape by being converted. The, The flesh, the tendency of the flesh, the willingness of the flesh to fall into the same old habits is there. You know this. This is why we sang that hymn because you have been there just as I have. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So what are some of the things that really get in the way? They get in the way of people who are not converted, but they also get in the way of those who profess to be the Lord's. Just a handful. There are, there are many which could be expressed here. First, friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. We saw that in Lot's wife, didn't we? That really was friendship with the world. That was a problem. She was attached to Sodom. She was earthbound, but not just earthbound, but that place, that people. Not everything she knew about it, she was just tied to that. And so when she's told, get out of here, don't look back, She's kind of hesitatingly running out of there, being dragged out of there, and off they go, and then she's like, she just can't help it. She can't help it. She looks back. You might look at that and think, that seems harsh, but the look expressed the reality of the heart. It's not just the look. It's what the look revealed about her heart. Look reveal about her heart that she wanted to go back there, that she was, she was upset about losing it and walking away from it. She loved the world. Friendship with the world. Remember, friendship with the world is to be an enemy with God. You're enemies of God. You love the world, love the people in the world, love the things of it. But be careful with this. You're, you're young people I say adults as well. listen, but all of us. We have to tread so carefully in relation to how we interact with this world it's the Christian life is not meant to be all right. I go to church, I read my Bible and I pray, and there are certain acts of service that I do now I can kind of hit things into hit the cruise control and coastal down the the freeway of life there's there's a there's, there's an aspect in which you are in a repetitious way ex. Examining your interaction to the world and what it's pouring in and promising you, and you're wondering, you are asking the question, Does this glorify God? Does this glorify God? I'm in this world and there's there's friendship with the world, and so you're asking, "Does, Does this glorify God? Don't act like you have all the answers. If you act like you have all the answers, you will fail. David's example in the scripture, part of the weight of his example is how he, despite his wisdom and his knowledge of God's word, he keeps going back to God and inquiring. Inquiring. Lord, what shall I do? This man who's who's had more battles and victories than perhaps anyone else alive is looking at the possibility of battle and he's asking God, should we go up? Should we go up, Lord? If anyone, humanly speaking, could have assessed the issue, it was David. And he still asks, Lord, what do I do here? And I'm saying to you, live your life in this constant fellowship of asking the Lord. Help me to glorify you, Lord. Let me not be entangled with the affairs of this life. Let me not be just wrapped up in cares and things of, of that waste, just wastage. No, I can't tell you every specific issue. I can't tell you where there's danger in your life and your heart. This is something between you and God. You can come and seek counsel, and I may. I may be able to open the Scriptures, and I may even be able to give you specifics and say, I think that's unhealthy. I would encourage you to stay away for this reason and that reason. But many questions, the ones that befuddle you, are just as likely to befuddle me, and I don't know exactly what it's doing to your soul. But if you're asking the question, just remember, friendship with the world is dangerous. You have to be so careful. And so many people experience transient passions because there they are, before the cross, gazing at Christ, considering His sufferings, wondering at substitution, praising Him for His work. And as if man's natural tendency to spiritual decay wasn't bad enough, he focuses then his energy on things that just draw out like a polis. Just, it's just zapping the spiritual energy out. A soul. Friendship with the world. An aversion to trials. I think this is a peculiar danger, well, maybe anywhere in the world, but I think it's a danger that we have because we, we're living in a place that's largely peaceful and at rest, and we really don't meet much in the way of trial in our lives, certainly early on. We can get through, generally speaking, the average person in America can get through a huge chunk of their life without any really intense trial, right? Some grow up. They don't remember when there wasn't a trial, as in they grew up in certain parts of the world. They don't remember when a time when it wasn't like living day to day, wondering if there was going to be food on the table today. Will it be there today? That's what they're wondering. That's a a trial. They grow up around that. hardens them. It hardens them those kind of things. But we don't have a whole lot of that, so perhaps this is a peculiar one to us. When the trial eventually does come in our life, we're, we're sent into a tailspin. Can't believe it happened to us. How could we be going through this trial? What, what's God doing? I can't believe that I might be sick for a little time or I might show signs of weakness or that someone might not like me or I might lose my job. And so we have an aversion to trials. We start blaming God. Charging God. So you're, one Sunday you're there praising Him. <laughs> Singing hymns like hymn number five. I thank we all our God. Next day something bad happens and you're, you're questioning His wisdom. No thankfulness. It's like a cloud. Disappears. Love of money. i warned of this in Timothy. Love of money. See another, I think, even going back to Felix, I think that's part of Felix's issue, wasn't it? As you read on down through that passage, he, he hoped to have get, gotten some money for, for letting Paul go. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's an exploiter. And that's perhaps what caused the feelings to dissipate so quickly. Because as he's hearing the word and he's trembling under the word and he's wondering what to do with the word and he, he manages to pull and pry himself away, not to respond in that instance. And then he begins to contemplate how he can get take advantage of having Paul under his charge. And maybe he can financially benefit from this. Well, as soon as he starts thinking that way, any spiritual notions are going to quickly go away. So they're gone, never to return. Love for money. Same for the rich young ruler. How may I inherit eternal life? Give up your idol of your riches. And off he walks. Leaves it behind. There's also, I think, and this is kind of encapsulating many, many things. A rejection of humility. A rejection of humility. There's, there's, there's pride. There's constantly pride. And pride, pride is the Achilles heel of humanity. It's there in all of these things, isn't it? I mean, friendship with the world, aversion to trials, love for money, pride undergirds, all of that, when examined. But let's just think about it for a moment. What are we told? What are we told? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That God resisteth the proud, he giveth grace to the humble. He's constantly encouraging, exhorting, commanding, stay low, stay low. As soon as you think that you have it all together, get back down. As some of you imagine that you have it all figured out, get get on your face. <laughs> I mean, this is this, Really, that's, that's, that's the key to a successful Christian life. It's like you, you feel your head sort of rising in a little expression of pride It's like, get it down there again. Be dependent. Be dependent. Constantly dependent. And I, and I think then that's why God permits this to still be an experience within the professing church, transient passions, that he hasn't given us complete deliverance over it, where we can love God and it's this perfect upward trajectory of passion and zeal for Christ. Because if it was like that, what would happen to us? We would begin to imagine it's within ourselves ourselves. And we can just coast along and, and move our way toward glory in this upward-rising momentum of affection for the Lord Jesus. And what happens is, what happens is, instead of permitting that to be our experience, he, he's like, "No, no, 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 low! No. You need to go back down again because you're getting too big for your boots. You're thinking it's all about you. You need to relearn the basics again. Dependence on God in everything so that you have to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, this day, this day. That's how he wants you to pray. In America, it's really hard to pray that way, isn't it? This day? Well, why should I be worried about this day? I don't have just bread for this day. I have bread for tomorrow. I can see it there. (laughs) The pantry's full. Some of you, especially at certain times when Certain shells were emptying a few years back. You know, you started to stock up. You know, you had probably nine months' worth of rice and all sorts of other things stuck away just in case your peculiar interests and culinary things might not be available to you. See, give us this day our daily bread. I have nine months of stuff there. I'm not worried. It's hard to pray. And yet, that's why the Lord you can have your, your storage all filled with food and he finds another way of bringing you down so in some fashion you're needing daily dependence on him. That's the way he has it. It's to keep you from these transitory affections. It's to harness you back into himself. A great enemy of pride. I can live life. I can do this. I've got it. I'm preaching to the choir here. I can, I can avoid the place of worship and it won't have any detrimental, detrimental effect on me. I can avoid the place of prayer. I'll not backslide. Oh, really? Really? Sure about that? Are you sure that you can avoid the means of grace, any available means of grace, and it doesn't have a detrimental effect upon your spiritual life. Are you so sure? Where's that assurance rooted in? Your pride. Finally, transient passions are didactic in their purpose. Kind of touched on this, so I won't elaborate too much, but it's didactic, it's a teaching, it's instructive, that's the idea. It the whole reason God has permitted it to be this way is to throw him, throw us back into him. Now he doesn't desire that we walk away from him in the first place, right? If we had the sense. To learn from the Lord Jesus. Here you have the Son of God in flesh walking in the world. And in every nanosecond of his life, there is this utter dependence on the Spirit. For everything. Constant communion. Constant expression. Of his need. For divine power and help. So he walks. And the worst. Attacks of hell against him cannot cause him to waver at all. He is the epitome of consistent, perfect affection. So we are to, in our seasons of Waywardness, where we see first of all the fickleness of our nature. The fickleness of our, our nature is fickle. It is. It's, you can have people, they walk an aisle, stick up their hand. If you asked them in that moment, if you said to them, in some appeal for for missionary service, if you said to them, put up your hand if you're willing to go to the mission field. Come forward if you're willing to go to the mission field. They'd be moved by some expression of need in some particular field, or the argument and presentation of that need from the preacher, and, and they're moved. And if you had some transport in the parking lot that could take them to West Africa or Mongolia immediately, they would would step in. But instead what happens is they express this willingness, Lord, wherever you send, I will go. Whatever you ask me to do, I will do. If there's something in my life you want me to give up, I will surrender it gladly. If there's a relationship that has come between my relationship with you, I will end it. Then Monday morning comes. Where did it go? It's gone. So often it's gone. So the gospel is needed daily. The gospel is needed every day for our fickle nature. What's the gospel? The gospel is what Christ has done. It's not what you're dedicated to doing. The gospel is, get your eyes on the one who finished the work. This is the good news. The good news is not your response to it. The good news is what Christ has accomplished, what he has done for you. And so you get back and you say, look at me in all my fickle ways. (laughs) I can't do this. And you look at Christ who did, and you're so glad you're represented in him. You're so thankful God looks upon you with love because of him. And you just, you see, there's the expression of gratitude. I'm motivated in thanksgiving. And that gratitude from what Christ has done, that sense of the unworthiness, that, that you should feel that He should give His Son to be a Savior for you, die on the cross for you, suffer for your sins, that awareness of that every day, in light of what that all of that is involved in that. Let me just respond in worship. That, that, will, that will mitigate the fickleness of the nature. So there's your fickle, fickleness of nature, and it needs the gospel. There's your dependence on God. That's where you need the spirit. Right? You need God, right? You're you're to you're to see your need for God and go to the Holy Spirit every day asking for it. Asking for it. I think if there's one prayer that the devil could remove from our lips, that he'd love to remove, I'm sure many could be expressed, I I know this, but certainly up there, up there, in some of the top prayers of it, if I could just stop them praying for that, it would be, Lord, fill me with your Spirit today. Eradicate that. Just delete that from their prayer. And then your need for the word. You need the word. Not the only the gospel. Not only the spirit, but you need the word. And you need the word to mortify. That's an old word, isn't it? Don't use very much these days. Mortify. The word comes to us. We read it and it like <laughs> cuts. It cuts. I mean, that's, that's what we read in, in Hosea, isn't it? What the words of the prophets do. I have hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. You need that. You need that. Mortify. Lord, let me see my sin and respond to the word, putting to death the members of my body, putting to death the passions. So, transient passions for God. Is it relevant for you? Relevant for me? Have we accepted that this is just the way it's going to be? Or do we realize that by God's grace, the Lord is able to empower us and equip us and so fill our minds, being engaged in trying to comprehend the length and breadth and depth and height and to know the love of God which is in Christ. Having our minds filled with that, And then in gratitude, offering our bodies, our lives. Realizing the only way it will ever stay there is by the daily infilling of the Spirit of God and a humble response to the Word in all that it says, in all it commands. The Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. As a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Those multitudes that stood around Jesus when he fed the five thousand. So interest, so interested, so keen, so zealous. And the next day when he asks, t- tells them the truth and speaks to them, it says. Many of them turn back and walk no more with him. Of course, then our Lord asks the disciples, will he also go away? You can pray tonight, even as we close, Lord, keep me from being a morning cloud. Keep me from the kind of spirituality that's just like an early dew. Lord, we ask for grace to persevere. We pray for power. Deliver us from fluctuating convictions, from being driven by hurts and failed aspirations. May we recognize in Christ the greatest treasure we could ever have. May we hold upon Him as He holds upon us with love. Help us not to be transient. Grant that we might minister to a people that because of the means of grace and the mercy of God. They are kept by the power of God. So grant us help this week. Empower us to seek first the kingdom of God and thy righteousness. And may we be lights. May we be salt. May we do thy bidding every day. Bless our fellowship. Go with us to your homes and empower us, we ask. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.